Welcome to Architects of Imagination, a game dev podcast where we talk to the brilliant minds behind your favorite video games. Uh, and I'm very excited to have my good friend Ralph Barbagallo on today. Uh, welcome to the show, Ralph. Hi. You can tell he's my good friend because he pronounced my last name correctly, which I uh, just just taught him how to do seconds before this recording started. I have not always gotten it correct. Yes. Yeah, no, it's fine. It's fine. Um, yeah, I'm stoked to have you on. Uh, we mostly know each other from uh, E3 and GDC at the the EP and GDP. I mean, you, you you did work with me as well. Yes, we did do a game together. <laughs> yes, but we go back from from well before that. No, and for every sure. Time, yeah. Every time we hang out, it's it's a blast. You're super fun to talk to, so I'm super glad to have you on. Uh, why don't you tell us uh, first? Let's just kick off with what you're up to right now. What what are you what are you working on? What are you rapping? Well, I'm I'm shamelessly promoting what I'm working on right now. Xeno Tilt, uh, hostile pinball action. It's out on Steam and early access. But I mean, you know, it doesn't feel like an early access game. It's pretty full featured. So you can go get Xeno Tilt right now. Pinball, bullet hell, aliens, missiles, lasers. Uh, you know, it's it's pinball. But I feel pinball has this weird stigma every time I try to. Certain people I talk about pinball, they go, oh, pinball. But it's like, no, you can play the game. It has, like, robots, quests, explosions. You can open an airlock like an alien and all the stuff gets sucked into it. There's all, right. all kinds of stuff going on in this game. So you, should, you should play this game. It's not, it's not like the Adams Family or Twilight Zone pinball. It's some other stuff that you probably haven't seen before. Very cool. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to, to push, the, push the boundaries and innovate in a genre that, that maybe hasn't before. That that's one one uh, like design trend that's been going on, too is like genre bashing, right? Like like mm -hmm. I think of, I think of games like uh, Don't Starve, where they're taking kind of like horror and crafting mechanics, and it's like even Call of Duty, right? They sort of combined RPG, you know, like level progression and uh, and shooters. Um, so that's that's gonna be a fun space to like examine, yeah. I feel like everything's an RPG now. Like ever since GTA San Andreas, which was what, like twenty years ago now? Once that came out, remember you could like you could you could you had to work out, your character would get fat, it had like all these weird stats. <laughs> I feel like yes. ever since that game came out, like every game has added RPG elements to every possible genre. Uh, I mean that's been going on for a while, but I feel like that game kind of mainstreamed it and now you see that in everything, right? Like, you know, it's 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 cool. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of uh, mashing up going on. Yeah, another one that that grabbed me recently, Vampire Survivor, which like got, strangely, mm -hmm. I, I was surprised it got Game of the Year, but it's a it's a super fun game. But that's kind of like a bullet hell game plus like mm -hmm. oh, now like it's called Bullet Heaven. That's its genre because it's like the inversion of Bullet Hell. I've learned okay, that. yeah, it's, like yeah, you it's are a new genre. <laughs> yeah, that game. I'm like, you know, what? I'm not surprised they got Game of the Year because at first I was like, well, that's trolling, but then. You know, when it came on Game Pass, like I bought it on Steam when it first came out. I was like, "What is this?" You know, and then, <laughs> you know, like, you know, I just kind of blinked a little bit. I'm like, "All right," but then when it came out on Game Pass, I got it again, and then the DLC was out, so I got all the DLC. And I just like this past like Christmas, like a year ago, about like a little, I just got sucked in, and I that, I totally I dropped in. And I just understood the game, and I'm like, "Oh, I get it. I can kind of see why this is Game of the Year, even though my first Game of the Year was Elden Ring." Uh, I could totally see. It. I I totally understand. It's not really trolling because that game's amazing, and there's so many ripoffs of it. Even though it itself was kind of a ripoff of some other mobile game, uh, it's like created its whole genre. So like I don't know. It's worthy. It's 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 not. A, it's it's in the conversation 
I think for game of the year of that year. Yeah, for sure. I got sucked in too. It's like, it's very, very few and far between where I 100% a game and get all the achievements. Mm -hmm. But I did on, on that one. Uh, it was a blast. Um, yeah. Let's talk about, uh, let's, let's go to some current events. Uh, Unity's been in the news mm -hmm. this week. Uh, yeah. They announced a new pricing model that included uh, everyone having to pay five cents or, you know, depending on. I, yeah, depending on the, yeah, the day of the week. Description. When they, you know. And yeah. They keep just, changing it. And I, I think I just read that they're, they, they have apologized. They're going to change it. I, I don't know where this is landing, but like, is the damage done at this point? I mean, look, I'm, people who know me know I'm a Unity freak. I love, I've been using Unity since 2010 or so. Um, and I just think like a huge chunk of the game industry would not exist if it wasn't for Unity. But it is true that Unity gave us this incredible free engine that was subsidized by venture capitalists or whatever. And it was free. Although, you know, back in the day, I remember Unity people telling me that, like, although they raised a bunch of money back then in, like, 2013 or whatever, before they went public, that the company was profitable. So I don't think it was, you know, the, the, some people have been telling this story of, like, well, you know, we got it for free because it was subsidized by, like, you know, all the VCs. But I'm not sure if that was really true because I think there was a point where they were actually making money. Um, but uh, I kind of understand that, like, you know, I don't know, they ipo and when you IPO, you know, you kind of have to, it's now you're trying to satisfy shareholders. You're not trying to satisfy me as a developer. I'm irrelevant. You're trying to satisfy shareholders. Um, and the company doubled its headcount during COVID. So it went from like four to 8,000 employees. Oh, wow. Um, something like that, right? I would be completely wrong. Like coders to developing? They're not, there's, I, the one thing they're not doing, they're not fixing the bugs. I mean, like, I love <laughs> Unity and it's very good. But there's some things like, why are there still three renderers and they're still not, doing a parody with each other. It's been seven years in the making. Like, you know, like, so there's 8,000 employees, but a lot of these big problems haven't been solved. But regardless, you know, the engine's way, like the right, you know, before, like say, let's say before JR became CEO, whatever, you know, there was some dark times. I mean, people forget Unity 5 in 2015 was the worst version of Unity ever. That was terrible. When they yanked out the lighting system and put in their own, that didn't work. I mean, it was bad. So, I mean, yeah. the engine, in my opinion, is still cool. And I, you know, I've built Unreal projects and, uh, you know, Unreal is, you know, I can't say, like, I don't like it as much, but I can't say that's because the engine isn't as good because that's not true, but it just works a completely different way. So I'm just kind of like used to Unity. So um, I mostly became a Unity fan because, well, at the time there was no choice because back then Unreal 3 or whatever, you had to pay a gajillion dollars. But also yeah. Unreal, 5% is a lot of your money to give up. And I'm sure you can go get a deal somehow and reduce that in exchange for upfronts or whatever, but that's a lot of money. And so for me, not having a royalty was, I, I will suffer through any, you know, I will jump through any flaming hoops in Unity to not pay a royalty. But now that they want me to pay this install fee, well, you better fix these bugs. Like, wait, like what are you talking about now? Like, I pay for Unity Pro, okay? And like, this stuff that's so broken in Unity, like you never use a new Unity feature because they're always broken. Uh, so you want, now you want an install fee, you know, like maybe, maybe you should make the stuff work if you're going to charge this much money. Like it's kind of preposterous. Like they're going to give us, they're going to make us pay more money, but we get absolutely nothing in return. So you can apologize all you want, but I just think like, 
it, the value proposition, we, nobody understands what it is. So, and also, I mean, look, and then Sophie makes no sense. Like, how do you calculate that? First, they said they're going to calculate it through their AI. But anybody who's used the new Unity feature knows that they can't make anything that works uh, in under five years. You know what I mean? Like, nobody uses their, their new input system. They, that thing has been in there since, like, what, 2014? Still doesn't work. So you mean to tell me that they're going to make an AI that could detect installs when they still, you know, there's stuff that's broken in the URP renderer for seven years? So just on a technical level, I'm like, I don't believe they can actually implement that, even if it was possible. Um, and then we just have to trust them that their install count is correct. Whereas I think with them, really, you have to self-report your revenue. But now they change it, right? Now we, now we can self-report installs. They're changing it every day. But I'm not even sure if I have that data, like in some cases. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure how much it's going to affect me because because the the, the the way the numbers work out, like as far as the, hitting that threshold for reporting, I don't know. And then they kind of backtracked and said that that like the the console platforms will be paying. That's my favorite. It's like, have you called anybody over there? <laughs> like, you might want to check in with them. I'm pretty sure they haven't actually. Uh, you know, have they have they have they called uh, anybody at Microsoft uh, to ask them if they would politely pay them all this money? Because I'm pretty sure I know they have they called Apple. Has Tim Cook gotten a phone call from uh, Jr. Uh, and asked them to politely pay an install fee for the billions and billions of downloads Unity apps get on their platform? I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure if that's. Uh, I mean, if they've done that yet. If they're right, I mean, they, they got a massive money maker on their hands. <laughs> I mean, is the strategy we're going to hold the entire game industry hostage and say, if you don't pay us part of your platform fee, we're going to turn the lights out on 70% of mobile games that are made, you know, because apparently 70% of mobile games are made with Unity. Is that what they're trying to do? I don't really know. It makes absolutely no sense. I understand they need to make money. If you look at their numbers, they're broke, right? They're going to be like out of money in like three years. And Again, I, again, I probably don't know what I'm talking about, but, but from vaguely reading articles, I haven't even, you know, looking at their public filings. It seems to me that they're running out of money, and most of their growth is from, like, services revenue, which it includes the ad network. And I really think what this is all about is trying to force mobile game developers to use their ad network because their ad network is what makes – that's, like, their Fortnite. Like, like, Epic has Fortnite that, like, makes a bunch of money, and then they have engine development to support it. And like they had their ad network, but then they merged with Iron Source last year, which was like an ad network. And so now it seems like they're an ad network company. The engine's just kind of like, oh yeah, we also make a game engine. And so now they're like trying to get everybody to use their ad network. And the problem is, of course, ads don't really make money like they used to anymore because of all the privacy changes that Apple enacted. So their entire revenue growth plan for ads is the kneecapped. So I think it's like desperate times. But I also don't understand why they care about me as a PC console, you know, VR, AR developer. Like, we don't have the numbers that mobile has. So maybe, in my opinion, like, why don't you just make this install fee just for mobile platforms? And then, you know, again, like, because they do have that thing where, like, if you use their ad network, I think the install fee goes away or whatever. That's, in my opinion, I think that's just what they're trying to do is to force people to use your ad network because that's where all their money comes from. So leave me alone. Like, I have nothing to do with that. Like, I don't touch mobile. Um, but that's just my guess. It seems like... You know, I understand they have to make money, and I always thought that the seat license thing wouldn't quite scale. But also, I don't really think they enforce their seat license stuff. You know that well. You keep hearing about studios that have like twenty Unity free seats, and then one Unity Pro, and they make the build with Unity Pro. It's like you know what? Why don't you start there? Like, there's people out there that owe you guys money. 
like right now. And I, yeah. I feel like earlier versions of Unity, you couldn't, free and pro couldn't interoperate. I could have sworn, I could be wrong. And I feel like that, you know, there's a lot of places where they can make money, uh, like Plastic SCM. Like I think Plastic's really good. They can make that as big as GitHub and make money outside of the ecosystem. It shouldn't just be for game developers. I think it's actually a really good product um, post-acquisition. It kind of sucked pre-acquisition, but I think when Unity bought, it actually got a lot better. There's a lot of ways they can make money, but this is preposterous. I don't even understand how it would even work uh, at a technical level. Yeah, I've been frustrated with their pricing model too. In that, you know, some. I mean, we're 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 a service company, right? Sometimes we get hired for short projects, like with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> When we worked on uh, the the one one thing with you, and you know we have yep. to now buy licenses for th- you can't turn on and off Unity subscriptions, yeah. so it's like you know we have to commit to a year long for a little two month project. It's like, yeah, it's not <laughs> not well, a deal. But you know what? If that meant that you, they got rid of the assault, like I think that they could enforce that in a way they could make. I don't maybe maybe that just doesn't scale. Like I said, but I kind of feel like. Uh, you know, they should enforce this pro thing. They shouldn't allow companies to have 20 free licenses of one pro if you're going to do that, right? You're kind of obviously skirting the rules. Um, but, you know, like last time when I had to renew my license, I got a call. I'm like, hey, there's a guy in your project that doesn't have pro, which I didn't know. <clears throat> I, had up, I had upgraded. Fine. It's all fair. <clears throat> uh, because that was the expressed contract before they pulled this stuff. But uh, I feel like they should have like, like pla- again, going to plastic, which is really cool. Um, they only, they only charge you for monthly active users. So when I have 20 people in a project for the month and they're all checking in stuff and checking out stuff, I pay, I think it's like, I don't know, 10 bucks a month for each one of those users. But then if people stop, you know, the, the you know, the contractors are, and your contract ends, whatever the project's over and you're down to one or two developers. Now I'm only paying 20 bucks a month. And I kind of feel like what they should do for unity pro, this would be again, not based on me knowing that this would actually work financially. But I feel like for every two pro licenses, they should give you one monthly active user license, which would allow somebody to dip into a project for a month and you pay a pro rated, you pay like a month for that month that that user's in there. And then, and then he, you know, he or she just dips out. So it's like, okay, I have to buy two pro. That way you can't just cheat. So I have to buy two pro licenses and then I get a monthly license as well. So if I need an artist to check in something just for a month or a QA person to check in something for a month, I get that, that, that extra license is active for a month. I got to pay that month and then dip out. And I think you'd be able to capture a lot of value that way for people who normally just be trying to slide by with like free and plus. But I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense. I just feel like the scale of money that these guys need to make because now they're, they, they just have so much debt and obligations to pay. Maybe this is just small potatoes. And again, I think it's all about the ad network. And I just kind of feel like if that's the case, then why do you care about con- – I almost feel like they don't care if every single console, PC – and VR and AR developer leave. They don't care. They just want to strangle mobile developers until they they use their ad network. That's what it just seems like to me. And they're willing to just have all of us just bail. The only problem is, in my opinion, there's no alternative, um, especially for 2D. Like, I've looked around, like, what's my escape pod? And it's tricky because none of these engines compare. They just don't compare. I mean, especially the knowledge and the code base that I've built up over two of these pinball games. It's like, I, I don't know what I would, I, I don't know. We're all planning our escape, kind of, sort of. Yeah, but I don't know. I don't know where it would be. Nothing compares. Godot or Godot or I don't know how you pronounce yeah. it. Yeah. No, it's not there yet. Yeah. Maybe five years from now, you know. Unreal can do 2D stuff. It's terrible at 2D, though. They need to beef <laughs> that up. I mean, 
Tim, pay me to make Xenotilt 3 or something in paper 2D and you in Unreal and just do everything we ask for and maybe you'll have a have a competent 2D engine in there. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean Unreal, but for 3D, you know, and you know, if you're doing VR and AR, Unreal, um, Meta does it. Like, I, I don't know if they have a deal with Meta or whatever. Here's a case where maybe the platform pays for it, right? You don't pay the Unreal royalty until you pass 5 million in revenue on the Quest. So if I was doing VR right now, I probably, even though I think Unity's a way better engine for VR, financially, I don't know. I probably, I, if I was starting a new VR project right now, I'd probably start it in Unreal. I'm not sure. Interesting. Hmm. Um, let's let's pivot to, let's talk about the uh, the economy and, and how it's um, mm-hmm. affecting the game industry. I, I, you know, at our company, we've, we've noticed a downturn this year. We went for a while without... New contracts were kind of coming around again. Things are picking up now, but um, and I hear that sort of across the board from a lot of people that that this has been a very thin year. I, I know a friend of ours' mm-hmm. studio just shut down. Um, there's been layoffs at a few people, um, and you know I've, I've thought about why why that is. What, what's your perception? What, how are you feeling about about games and 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 the economy and the tech layoffs? How that's yeah, affected, I mean, it's affected it. It's weird, right? I mean, people still have money, right? I mean, it's, I think the money's just in other places. I mean, I've experienced the same thing, like as far as the stuff that goes on outside of um, the games that we develop and publish, like as far as things that sometimes external companies want us to work with them and stuff. Yeah, let's, a lot of that stuff has slowed down dramatically. Um, I remember it started like last October when people, you know, I'd be like talking to a company and then all of a sudden the email bounces and it's like, oh, they laid everybody off and I know this company. And it just kept happening, you know, it started about a year ago. And, um, yeah, but I mean, I just think that like, there's, there's still a lot of money out there. I mean, um, and I just feel during COVID, these companies thought this was the new normal and they just exploded. Like we just talked about, you and me doubled their headcount, I think during COVID. A lot of companies did that and it just was not sustainable. And with interest rates at 0% or whatever, money's not as easy to come by. So there's not a lot of money flowing to people like uh, you or I, or you or me, however you dramatically say that, because it's just money's harder to come by in general because, you know, they have to pay more for money or whatever. I'm not a financial wizard, but as I understand it, that's, you know, definitely affecting things. But I mean, I still think that there's just, and it's still an insatiable demand for games. It's not like people aren't playing games and aren't buying games. Uh, I mean, this game actually, when we launched it, this game has sold way better than the first game, which came out in 2019, you know, in the glory days of free money. (laughs) So, you know, I I think that there's, I think there's demand, um, but I think that companies are placing bets in different ways and they're not, they're not throwing money around like crazy like they were two years ago because it's, it's harder. It's, you know, it's, it's money's more expensive. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And my, my kind of theory has been that like, some of this, and even the tech downturns too, are sort of a, a a backlash to the COVID response, where where COVID hit, and basically every company that could go remote did, like all at once, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and time was lost, and you know, like infrastructures had to change, and and so people scrambled to like get games out, and and in general, so there was a hiring spree, right? It, it salaries inflated. And, you know, now we're sort of like after that period, those games have shipped now. And, you know, that combining with money drying up a little bit, like, you know, there's there's a I, I don't know. I feel it. there's there's feels like a, a contraction to me. Um, 
But yeah, just anecdotally, we, we, we're coming out of it now. We just signed, you know, a few new contracts in, in the last couple of months. So, you know, oh, cool. we're through the worst of it. <laughs> That's good. Um, yeah, let's talk about um, let's talk about your past. Tell, how, tell us how you got started in, in game development. Oh, well, in game development, um, you know, I mean, I've been playing games since I was, you know, three or four years old, right? I mean, I'm a man of a certain age. I, computer and or console. Oh, my first console was a ColecoVision, Christmas 1982. Yeah. Uh, but before that, you know, I had, you know, seen video games. My, you know, some kid I went to, like, first grade with had an Atari 2600. I begged my mom to take me to his house. I don't remember the kid's name. I just remember, like, going to his house, and my mom and his mom were in the kitchen talking, and me and this kid were playing Space Invaders. I'm just like, this is amazing, you know? My grandfather <laughs> used to take me to the arcade, and he would hold me up. You know, I was a little, I was like three years old. He would hold me up so I could reach the controls. And I'll never forget this, like, foundational experience with, you know, I grew up in Boston, the Boston area. And my dad's friend worked for Digital, which was like a big company, you know. Um, yeah. I don't think they exist anymore, but they were, you know. And so they used to have like a family day where they would bring, you know, your friends and your family could come to the Digital camp. These were like the Facebook and Google plexes of the 1970s, right? They were like these big yeah, campuses. The PDP, you go there. The alphas and all yeah. yeah. And you could see all this miraculous technology. And I remember, and this must have been like, I swear it was like 1979. I must have been like four years old or something. But I still have this vivid memory of like going uh, into this room and you know, they had different exhibits. And it must have been a PDP 11 or something. And it's playing tic-tac-toe. On a monochrome screen, and I was just standing there, amazed. <laughs> X. Oh, I'm just. This is incredible. My dad's like, "What do you like?" There's a laser show at the planetarium. We gotta go see the lasers. And I'm like, "Lay." I'm like, just kept wanting to play tic tac toe. I was just, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. This is the most incredible thing I'd ever seen, and I'll never forget that. Uh, and so I was an addict from early on, as far as games and interactive computing, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, and you know, another time, before, I think before I had my ColecoVision, my friend's dad got the Telstar arcade from Coleco that just had the gun with, and it was the black screw with the white dot bouncing back and forth. They just shoot at the plastic gun. I was just, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> Today, kids can buy VR at Walmart and they think it's, it's all right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and like, that's their VR. I can't imagine what stuff's going to be like, you know, 50 years from now and I'm dead or whatever. But that's, yeah. So, you know, I mean, Video games were just fascinating to me from early on. Yeah, and and I had, I remember his name. Uh, I also had a buddy up the street who had an Atari twenty six hundred, and I went to his house as much as I could, not to hang out with him, but to play. Yeah, his no, game. there's always that guy. Yeah, his, his name was Robbie Balmat. <laughs> Shout out Robbie Balmat. Yeah, you know, you know, yeah. Our street was like the United Nations of video games. I had the ColecoVision, which was, let's be real, the Neo Geo of 1982. It was incredible. Yep. Uh, my buddy Dave, I'm still friends with this day, he had Intellivision, which I was fascinated by. It seemed like very mature. You know, George Plimpton told you it was, this is the mature selection for the educated palate. <laughs> and Greg, my buddy Greg, who, you know, I occasionally contact with, he had the 2600 up the street. And my buddy Justin, uh, you know, who is no longer with us, but he... He had an Odyssey too, oh, so man. we had every we had everything covered. We had all of them. We had everything <laughs> covered. Yeah, you know, 
Yeah, and, and Joel, yeah, you were best friend person who's constantly <laughs> like the best. Yeah, Joel Gumont up the three three doors down. Shout out uh, to Joel Gumont. There was some guy I don't remember who had an Atari fifty two hundred. It was the only person I ever knew that had one. Hell yeah! Uh, so what, you know. what's what's the leap from all that to then making them yourself? Well, you know, it's so I grew up in Boston, and I'll never forget. You know, one time. Runs a family trip, driving up 114, and there was this building. You know, this is 1983 or something, right? You know, Atari 2600 just popping, and there's this building, and it says Parker Brothers on the building because Parker Brothers is from the North Shore, like Salem, Mass, around there, Peabody, Salem, Mass. And I'm just like, wait, I'm in the back seat of the car. My parents are driving, so I'm like, Parker, that's the company that makes Frogger. You know, they made Empire Strikes Back. Wait, yeah. there, there's like a job, like you could. There's a building, and people are in there. <laughs> Making video, that's like a, because I had no idea where video games came from. You know, back then you think soup, you know, food comes to the supermarket. You, know, you don't know anything. So I just was like, wait, that's when I just started thinking like, well, like you can, this is a job. Like you go to work in that building and then video games come out. So the wheels started turning way back then when I drove by. I never got, I wish I had somehow gotten a tour or something back then. But I don't even know if that building was where they were making video games. But it is true that in the New England area, there was a group of developers that worked at Parker Brothers that formed this like loose collective. I think they were called the Blue Sky Ranges or something or something like that. Or the, the Microsmiths, I think they were called. I, I bumped into some of them later in my career. And they all kind of were in that scene in the, in the New England area making games. But yeah, that, that's when I just started thinking about it. And I always took games kind of dead serious as far as like a career and trying to make them as concerned. And I was always trying to make them. I wasn't particularly good at it. But I was always in my basement trying to program like Commodore 64. You know, but making games was was a dark art, you know, you know, there was no internet. You had to know somebody who knew somebody who knew how to write assembly, you know? Yeah. So it was hard to just figure stuff out. And so I was, I was also really into construction kits. So they had shoot 'em up construction kit, pinball construction kit, arcade game construction kit. So I always thought that was like, I was always looking for a shortcut, um, a shortcut to learning how to actually program. I was like trying to use all these different things. And then I got really into writing you know, I thought um, game journalism, like I wrote for a lot of magazines and stuff because I thought that somehow, you know, back then there were no, this was pre-Doom even, you know, there were no level editors. I couldn't show somebody that I knew how to design a game um, without writing one. And I wasn't particularly good at writing them from scratch. So I did a lot of writing for bag magazines and stuff. And I was trying to use that as a portfolio to prove that I could like think critically about games. So when I went and applied for jobs, I could just give them my stack of writing to be like, look, I'm, you know, I'm not just an idiot. And back then that's kind of like, you know, you could get away with that. Nowadays you actually have to make a game. I mean, you can, but, yeah. you know, <laughs> but that's kind of how I did it. I mean, I, I applied for a job at um, this place called Papyrus. It was the first real game company I worked at. Um, they made racing games, uh, IndyCar racing, NASCAR racing, and they were in uh, uh, Somerville, Massachusetts. And okay. yeah, it's, I, think was, I think I was 19. I got my first job there and I was working in the art department, which is why I think the first game credit I have in credit is an artist on Road Rash for the PC because, you know, I was technically an artist, I guess you could say, but really all I did was, my whole job was the 3DO version, we had to convert to the PC and 3DO version had 16-bit textures and the PC we only had one 256 color palette. So my whole job was using this program called the Babelizer, and I would take these CDs of all the Road Rash textures. They're all target files. Yeah, I hit a button on this Mac Quadra, and it would take eight hours to just churn through all the pick all the textures 
to find one two hundred fifty six color palette that best represented every one of those textures. And so I would just walk around the office and bug people all day because I had nothing else to do all day because that thing would just be churning away. And then when it was done, I had to look at every single texture and go, oh, you know what? We need an extra purple. Put a different purple in there. And it got, it got to the point where when I used to play Road Rash, I knew the name of every file, every texture. Like, this tree would drive by. And I'm like, well, that's Redwood 0002.tga. Like, I knew every single texture. So that's why I'm credited as an artist. I think that's my first credit, I think, awesome. um, in that game, even though I don't really consider that being an artist. Man, and you've worked on how many? About how many games have you worked on now in your career? If you could, if you could, wild, I've lost. Well, I mean, track. I don't know. Most of them don't count. I mean, I made a lot of mobile games that nobody cares about. They flip coin games. I mean, all count. Everything counts. Everything I mean, counts, but they don't even exist anymore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I can't. I mean, I don't know. Like twenty, if you want to call it. I mean, I don't know. I mean, most of them aren't games anybody would recognize as any sort of game. I mean. You know, but yeah, sure. Let's just say twenty. I've never really counted. I don't think Moby, Moby Games lists ninety percent of them. Do you do you have a favorite project that you worked on? Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I I do wax nostalgic about one of my first mobile games, which was, I believe, it was the first licensed mobile game in uh, in America, which was Lord of the Rings: The Two Towers for cell phones. There's some guy, there's a guy, shot, I don't know his real name, but shout out to, uh, I think KRZ7 or something is his YouTube handle. He's in Ukraine. Somehow he's, while dealing with the Ukraine invasion, he's making YouTube videos about, he's obsessed with cell phone games. And it's actually a documented history of cell phone games. And he actually made, he, he asked me on Twitter, do you have any stuff? So I actually went through my old hard drive backups from like the early 2000s and I found all the stuff and I gave it to him. I did not give him Lord of the Rings, by the way, because that is cock written. Uh, right. He got it some, I think he actually buys old phones and tries to see what games are installed. So he found some old phone that had my Lord of the Rings game installed on it. And he made a documentary. So if you go on YouTube, you look up Flarb, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, you'll find he does this little brief, because I gave him some factual information about the game, this little brief um, document, like factual snippet about the game. And then there's a playthrough. It takes about two hours to play the game. But that game was cool. It was... It was basically a Shining Force clone, like a SRPG. And, you know, it was for the two tower. I had some reference. They gave me some movie clips and well pictures back then on CD. And and we made this. I had, I had five weeks to make it. And I in five weeks, <laughs> I made The Lord of the Rings of Two Towers, a mobile game, which actually had a TV commercial that I cannot find. Verizon did a TV commercial for this game. And I wish one of the guys that worked on it, who now is actually some one of the big leads on the Lord on, uh, on God of War. So, you know, Flarb people have good pedigree. They, <laughs> he taped, he taped the commercial and I, you know, on VHS, how long it was. And I like broke the tape or something. I did no copy of this commercial that exists. Uh, if somebody out there has the Verizon commercial that features Lord of the Rings and two towers, I would love to get a copy of it. I'm sure nobody does. <laughs> That's awesome. Speaking of like, you know, fast development, my, my first job, my formal job in games at wild tangent yeah, we'd put out a game every, you know, I mean, not that fast. Every, every three, four months with three, four people. Um, mm-hmm. I'm reading uh, uh, Doom Guy right now, John Romero's book. Okay. Yeah, I have to read worked that. with uh, back at mm-hmm. Ionstar. Sure. Yeah. yeah, he was on the um, other team, but yeah, I mean, yeah, he was in the office. Okay. He was my and boss, kind of, because he owned the company. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, man, I was, I'm, I'm about halfway through the book now, but they talked about there was a year they put out 13 games. <laughs> um, yeah, that is bonk. They were doing like every month or two. They were putting out a game. Mm-hmm. 
fucking crazy. Just it's it's you know it makes me think of game jams. It's you know you're not putting out a game, but like you're you're exploring a concept in in a weekend. But yeah, it's, it's, I think people forget that like it's possible to do it. You, 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 if you are comfortable with the engine and the tech it, and have an idea, it's possible to just execute it. Depending on what kind of game. Yeah, I mean it's true. Today the expectations are a lot higher than when you're releasing a game commercially. It's a little weird. Uh, you know, back in the day, you know, yeah, I mean games were produced a lot quicker, but also there was a lot less going on in them, and the hardware was a lot less complicated. I mean, I just think of all the things, like, like right now in Xenotilt, there's an issue where, like, for some people, the game just crashes their whole computer, the power cycle of the thing at startup. I don't know why. I've never been able to duplicate it. The logs don't show anything when they send it to me. It, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's some random piece of hardware that interacts with some other random piece of hardware. I have no idea. But games wow. are just infinitely more complicated. And solving that has nothing to do with making the game fun. So there's so much more stuff to do today around making games that I kind of feel, you know, when hardware was simpler, hardware was simpler, the, the expectations were much lower. And uh, because of the hardware being simpler, the assets were, you know, simpler to create, although the tools were a lot worse. So, you know, it's funny, some of my uh, people who are, you know, of the same vintage as myself, like a lot of artists, they like, <laughs> they get a kick out of shocking the new employees by saying that back in the day, they did the modeling, the texturing, the rigging, and the animating. Like, they just did it all themselves, because... Yeah, that's what you did in 1997, 1998. I, I've been know. there. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> um, tell us, tell us what you're playing now. Are you are, are there any games you're hooked on? Uh, I'm playing Starfield. Okay. It's, uh, you know, it's a Bethesda game. It is what it is. I mean, I'm not a huge Bethesda game fan, but I'm playing it. It's 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 uh, you know, it's a Bethesda game. If you like Bethesda games, you'll like it. It's, yeah. I, uh, trying to think if we're yeah we we could we could mention that um yeah we, we worked on it <laughs> oh you did yeah it yeah, looks really did. nice i mean it's a very nice looking game it's just i just i can't imagine developing a game of that scope it just seems like a real it's just you know just the amount of stuff the amount of content it's just stuff i mean hope, maybe they had an ai tool or something like there's just stuff everywhere like junk everywhere you can pick up and did somebody have to manually place every foam cup and lunch tray in every space station. I mean, it's just an incredible <laughs> amount of work. Yeah, it is. It is. It's uh, yeah, it's a it's a big one. I'm hooked on. But I play uh, a lot of weird stuff. I oh yeah, continue. Yeah. I'm hooked on Baldur's Gate right now, and uh, Diablo oh, okay. Four are the, the two I'm kind of toggling. Oh, you're playing those. Okay, yeah. See, I, I don't. Uh, yeah, I'm, I just do. I play a lot. Of, like I played a Tactics Ogre, the remake. I've been playing a lot of that, and I don't know why. It's just it, I bought it. Because I like, because again, Lord of the Rings Two Towers was a, a Shining Force kind of—I don't want to say clone, but inspired by Shining Force. And so SRPGs are kind of cool. So I was playing through Tactics Ogre, but then I paid eighty hours in. I get to the last boss. It's like, oh, my characters are completely inadequate to the last boss, and you can't go back and grind. So I guess I just—I'm done. So can't be that game. <laughs> play Armor Core Six a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I'm trying to think. Like, there's no game right now that I'm like super, super duper into. But um, that's what, yeah. I'm, I'm playing Starfield because it's kind of like my job as a game developer to be culturally aware of yeah, the you know, games in general. Yeah, let's talk about uh, AR VR mixed media stuff. That's that's sort of the mm -hmm. space you've been living in for for a while now. Although Demons is it Xenotilt or De so Demons Tilt was this, the original? Xenotilt's the original. Xenotilt's the sequel. Xenotilt's yeah. the, the sequel. 
um, which yeah. is not a VR game, right? It's no. This is about as far away from VR as you can get. It's two D. It's sprites. It's retro. It has like a chip tune kind of you know style to it. You know the, the music and stuff. So it's um, yeah, it's uh, it's good. The complete. So there's like there's that, and then there's the VR and AR stuff that I've worked on. So it's almost a complete separate thing. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah they, they don't really intertwine. Is, t- talk about the the VR AR space. Are there are there is there hardware coming out? What, what, what's exciting you about? It? Are there new new moves happening in there? <coughs> in well, I mean, um, we've we've got uh, the Quest Three uh, is coming out, right? The, the they're going to launch it, I guess, at Meta Connect next week. So I'll be there. So I'm excited okay. to see what new content they announce with that because they did, they did show some content earlier this year. They had like an event, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see if there's any new stuff, like if there's any new features on the headset that enable some new types of content that weren't available before. As far as like new hardware is concerned, I don't know, like there's always rumors of a new Valve headset, but Valve releases headsets and then they don't support any content development on it. So I'm not quite sure. PC VR seems kind of dead. So I don't really know what a new Valve headset's going to do for anybody because nobody, I think I saw something that the median revenue from a PC VR game is $600. So there's not a big industry around PC VR. Oh, wow. So, I'm not sure what a new Valve headset's going to do. And then there's there's rumors of a Nintendo Google headset. I don't know if that's true, but I mean, crazier theories have been floated because they remember they did a cardboard headset for Labo for the Switch. Yeah. And then Google and Nintendo do have an existing relationship because you remember, I think I think it had kind of inspired Pokemon Go was the Google Maps Pokemon mashup from like 2014 or so. Because I think at that point, Niantic was okay. still inside Google's, um, they were incubated inside Google. And I think that that's kind of how their relationship kind of started. So, I mean, I could imagine a Google Nintendo VR headset. It, you know, they did do the Virtual Boy all by themselves in 1995. So, yeah. <laughs> but it's, we're, kind of a, we're kind of in a weird space because, like, there's only one company, maybe one and a half. Sony put out the PSVR 2, but I don't really see a lot of uh, resources being put behind making content for it. But uh, Meta seems to be the only company really putting money where their mouth is and building an ecosystem and supporting content being made for VR. Yeah, and and it's like th- that whole thing's been weird too. Like like it seems like I mean the Meta's the yeah Oculus Quest it, it was originally now it's now it's Meta Quest right? Yeah. Um, they changed their company name right. Facebook was their main product, and it's like. Mm-hmm. They're they're all in on on VR and it's and, and it's a great device. The Quest is is phenomenal, um, but then the whole debacle with them making the metaverse and what eighty people <laughs> like using yeah. it or something like what is going on over there with with all that? I mean, you know, I think that they you know saw that ads don't make money like they used to, and. The reason why that is is because Apple changed the rules and Facebook is completely dependent on Apple's ecosystem to make money, largely. You know, there's also Google's. But Google kind of did the same thing. So ads don't make money like they used to. So I think that they, I think they, you know, they, they probably bought Oculus back in the day for other reasons. But now they kind of realize, hey, this is a platform we build and we control. We can monetize it any way we want. So why don't we just double down on this? And is it the right bet? I don't know, but it's a better bet than a lot of other companies have. I mean, Snap seems to be kind of doing a similar thing. They're making their own AR hardware, but I think that AR glasses are way further away. VR works right now. 
you know, AR spectacles and stuff don't really work that well right now. And there's just a physics and material science problem that prevents that from really happening anytime soon. So I think that, yeah, they're trying to find a way out of, uh, they're trying to build their own ecosystem. And this is one way to do it. I mean, as far as Horizon is concerned, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's a test bed for ideas or something. I don't know if they're actually trying to make that a monetizable product anytime soon, but I know that they've launched a bunch of games in it and stuff. You know, who knows? I just kind of feel like there's a lot of metaverses like Fortnite and Roblox that have organically gotten traffic because people like them. And it's kind of hard to do it the other way around, just kind of like cram this thing at people and get them into it. I mean, it's kind of weird. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and there was, you know, Second Life a, a while ago was mm-hmm. probably the most successful version of it. And it's it's weird with Fortnite and Roblox because they are kind of metaverses. But, I mean, they're really games. So, like, what... Yeah, but now you can make there's the Fortnite <laughs> islands, and it's like you can make your own. And then you can build games inside Roblox. So I guess they're turning it into a thing. It's interesting. Games inside games. That's like a brand new market. Is it going to be a thing? I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. It just seems kind of weird that first the traffic has to come into the game, and then they have to somehow go to your game inside the game, which is different from the game they were there to play. Yeah. So I'm not really sure how that monetizes, but it is definitely kind of interesting. Especially the tool side, because you do get interesting development tools what you build inside these. They, they already operate at scale multiplayer, so it's kind of interesting from that perspective. It makes me think of the the adventure construction kit and the yeah <laughs> the ones you were using. I, I was on yeah sixty four a million years ago. Um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. so I can see why people are into it. You know, I can see it. I, I think too about um, you know just just the idea of a, a genetic generic metaverse. And people talk about you know NFTs and making things that are like cross game and yeah it, it, like you, you know designing it from a like it, the hook is a question right like if you're designing like mm-hmm. an office space and people are avatars in a VR headset in their office space like well, why like what's the reason to do that like is that is that an improvement on anything and I know like big consulting firms have people that that are are like prepping large companies to get presences in the multiverse and you know there's going to be maybe a some kind of a land rush in there but like it, there's just so many technical hurdles to that like you know i think of like like nfts making like assets that are cross game compatible well okay you know you think about world of warcraft right where where like the characters themselves they have like proprietary tech built into it. I'm assuming I don't know their character pipeline, but like, in order to like render all the characters in Ogremar, like they take all your little selections and they bake it out to a thing. And like, well, how does how do NFTs fit into that? Where does the bone? Well, they don't. I mean, we're game developers. We know like, we we know NFTs are bullshit. We're game developers. It's complete <laughs> horseshit. Right. Like they don't work. There's no way that'll work. On two levels, the technical level, it doesn't work. And on the business level, why don't you go try and ask, uh, you know, Ubisoft if they want, uh, you know, Altair or whoever to be in Mario Kart. Whatever they wouldn't want to be in Mario Kart. But you know what I mean? It's like there's a business this situation. I mean, it's, it's the only people that are interested in this are grifters that don't know about game development and try to talk my ear off about their weird solution for NFTs. And it's a solution to nothing. It's not a problem. I There's not – and I don't want my, you know – spaceship from from starfield to be in i don't know my elden ring game i don't care nobody cares this is not anything anybody wants 
And most NFT games that I see are just, you know, they're basically just skins around, they're just gambling or skins around speculating on a currency, a quote unquote currency. So, which is fine, whatever, you do you, you know, like, it's like gambling, like, I don't understand it, I go to Vegas, I don't know what people are doing there, I'm there to eat, you know, I don't know what people are there with the slot machines, and it doesn't make any sense to me, it's for people far worse at math than I am, but whatever, that's your thing, and like, people who play NFT, quote unquote, games, I mean, you know, whatever, more power to you, but I think it's a way for people to, I mean, I don't know, is it even a thing anymore, I mean, I don't even see a lot of chatter about it, I don't even know if it's worth discussing, but people, it's just, I think it's a thing for crypto speculators to kind of have fun, I guess. I don't know. All I know is I bought, I wanted to try it out. I bought a horse with horse bucks or whatever from Zed Run. <laughs> and I cannot figure, and then it's like, oh, you bought the horse and it's an NFT horse. But um, now, uh, you know, you gotta, to run the horse, you need horse energy. You need, you know, like you have to like, buy a horse race ticket, but there's like gas, you know, you have to spend money to spend the money. I'm like, I don't even understand how this works. It's, it's, so anyway, it's just, I think it's just for people who think they're going to somehow make money off of it. It's not like, you're not playing it. None of these things, they can't explain to me how any of this stuff makes a game fun. Yeah. I mean, grifter feels like the right word to me. Like you've kind of, you yeah. kind of saw it at like GDC, like the last, this little like double bubble of like, there was this fucking blockchain and like all games are going to be blockchain for like half mm -hmm. of the conference and the booths were like fucking blockchain booths. And then the last like two years, it was all like NFT stuff. And it seems like it's, yeah. it's falling off. When now. people start talking about it, my brain just shuts off. I literally just tell them, not you, because this is sick. <laughs> but like someone be like, hey, I have an NFT. I'm like, I don't want to talk. I just don't want to talk about it. I don't care. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> like, I don't care. Like, it's a complete waste of my mental energy to even have a conversation. I don't care. The only people I know who are into it are people who know nothing about software engineering. Because it's like, if you knew how this stuff worked, you'd be like, this is real dumb. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. It's like so many problems to solve. Um, let's talk about the, the future of games. Uh, if, if you were to just sort of project your mind into, you know, two, two three console generations from now, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, where do you, I don't know, what, what, what can you imagine will be possible in games that we can't do now? First, let me open my door because it's really hot in here. I was sure. trying to be, <laughs> all right, here we go. Okay, it's 500 degrees in this room. Um, well, I mean, hey, they just leaked Microsoft's 20-year plan, right? The FTC, just, they? we could just look at that. <laughs> yeah, apparently somebody somehow in the discovery phase they leaked Microsoft's roadmap for the past 20 years or something in a PowerPoint presentation. I don't know. I haven't looked at it, but Oops. I guess we should just read that and see what the future of gaming is. Oh, man. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I have no idea. I mean, it just seems like at one point we thought that, you know, I remember the, the, the prevailing thought was that um, consoles were all going to be one. Because if you think about it, the Xbox... Series X and the PS5 aren't really that much different from each other. In fact, I think AMD makes both of them, right? So yeah. <laughs> they're kind of like the same with minor differences between the two. <laughs> so conceivably, there could be a future where there's just one console and that console might be the PC. I don't know. I mean, I, but I feel like now they're starting to rethink that strategy, maybe trying to go on <laughs> divergent paths. I'm just very curious as to how the handheld space shakes out because I think that the Steam Deck if Valve really wanted to apply themselves, could be really disruptive. Because I've seen people with the Steam Deck that I never thought would even know about. You can buy, I guess you can buy a Best Buy now, right? So, really? 
People are buying it, and I just think that there may be one hardware revision away from it being a real factor. Because, I mean, you know, you could play God of War on it. You can play Call of Duty on it. And optimizing your game for Steam Deck is now a thing. You know, we spent a little bit of time on it on this game, making sure it was readable and playable. So I'm kind of curious how that shakes out. You know, the Switch, whatever they have in store for the next one, and the Steam Deck. I think Microsoft should jump in there and make the portable. Uh, I mean, it seems like a no-brainer. Yeah, but, right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of curious how that. I'm curious how the Steam Deck disrupts consoles, if it will at all, because I feel like maybe some of these studios might start pulling back on the PC. You know, you see a lot of Sony first-party games on PC, but will they start pulling back when they, when something like the Steam Deck starts to erode their market share, if that's possible? But most of the stuff they put out, you know, is the pre like I, you know, God of War Ragnarok isn't on PC, but the previous one is. So they're a little, you know, they, they make sure there's a lag, but I don't know. I, I think the Steam Deck's kind of disrupted if they really wanted to pour gas on it. Yeah, interesting. I don't, I don't have one yet. Uh, I, I haven't really. The last handheld I really got into was the DS, and that was <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> I mean, I, I still think the 3DS, the Street Pass, was the greatest thing ever. It was really designed for Japan because we're not that population dense, but there's still people I'm friends with on Twitter that I met at an airport on street pass in like, you know, 2013. Uh, I think street pass is, was cool. I, I, you know, I think, you know, it's kind of weird though. Cause handheld today, like, you know, the 3ds was a unique handheld, right? It had AR. It was 2011, had AR, had a three lenticular screen and it had that passive multiplayer street pass feature. Now when you play the switch, it's literally just a console you hold. And there's nothing about it that's handheld really. Um, yeah. that's unique to that form. So it's kind of weird. It's like, it's not really its own category. It's just kind of like, well, it's a shrunken down version of a console, which is fine. But yeah, I just kind of think that, I mean, I don't know. We'll see how that, we'll see how, we'll see how that, uh, how that shakes out because I don't know. I feel like Steam Deck and that category of devices, you know, could be, could be disruptive to some markets. I'm not sure because really it's all about content and, you know, Nintendo and Sony, and now Microsoft, with the acquisition of you know Bethesda and Activision, they do have a focus on stockpiling first-party content, which they can choose to not make available on these other platforms. Which yeah, you know, I think the Steam Deck benefited from everybody being like, "Oh, it's on the PC; it's not a competitor." So just put it on there. And now they have a console, and it runs all their PC games. So maybe publishers, first-party publishers, might think different of putting games on Steam if, it, if the Steam Deck becomes truly disruptive. I don't know, but I'm just kind of curious. You know, you got Game Pass, you've got Netflix games, you've got, you know, the Epic Game Store with the free game every week. I just am not convinced that people consume games like that necessarily. You know, you could binge watch TV shows, but you can't binge play games. Starfield is going to take me 140 hours to finish. <laughs> I can't yeah. play five of those at once. So I think that a lot of people are afraid of these subscription services. I think somehow it's going to destroy the premium games market, but I'm not really sure about that. Cause I think it appeals to a certain kind of customer. I don't think, you know, I feel like your average customer, like for instance, on the console, they play two games a year. They play like 2k in modern warfare two and not interested in anything else. So I, I think it's, I think that's kind of a good thing because I feel like it appeals to a different customer. And I don't think it necessarily signals the impending doom of people paying for games because I just think a lot of people don't consume games like that. 
but I could be totally yeah. wrong. Five years from now, the whole market could be obliterated and everybody <laughs> getting games are free. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm with you. I, I, I don't have Game Pass. I, I, I just know that I'm only going to buy a few games a year on the console and like mm-hmm. play them, and I just want to own them. Like, I'm not interested in subscription. I've got too many damn subscriptions. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, I've got I've a subscription to Game Pass. I've got a subscription to PlayStation Plus, Ultra, Mega, whatever it is. They do the same thing. They're launching games on PlayStation Plus. And now some games launch on both. I think Sea of Stars launched on PlayStation Plus and Game Pass on day one. But uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. You know, there's a lot of discussion of whether it cannibalizes your sales or what have you. But I don't know. I'm not sure there's a danger of that because I think that that's the people that are, at least for now, the people that are into those subscription services are a specific type of customer. So I don't know. I think I, I cautiously think these services are a good thing. I'm not sure if they're going to last because we've seen in Hollywood, how, you know, all the streamers have just had incredible losses, but then again, I'm not sure. Well, some of these games are very expensive to keep on, on subscription services, but you know, I'm not sure how the economics work out versus, you know, spending a hundred million dollars on a back row movie. You're going to delete off the internet. You know, I think that uh, the economics might work out where you can, you can run these services for a bit longer without having a wild success. I don't know. So we'll see. I, I, I like game pass every week. I try to see what's new on game pass. You know, I check things. I would never have played 99% of those games. I never would have bought them. I never would have played them if they were on game pass. So I've been exposed to a lot of stuff. I never would have seen before in game pass. That's cool. That's cool. Well, I think we're going to wind it down here. Ralph, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, before we close out, I just want to thank uh, our executive producer, Martika Abara, our editor, Robert, and the entire Architects of Imagination crew. Uh, thanks for joining me, Ralph. Sure, no problem. Till next time. We'll see you. All right.